broke my heart. Family reached out to us after the self-harm, and I understood uh, that she was critical and not likely to make it. It broke my heart, and um, it just goes on. And there's all this promise, political will that's described that will be change agency, and it always betrays every expectation. Nothing changes, brother. Child died 30 hours later when life support was turned off after being airlifted to the Children's Hospital in Perth from her community in the southwest. We were contacted before the airlift by the family. Broke my heart that we hadn't been in contact or known of the family before that and that we could have done something to prevent uh, what, in my mind, was always preventable, avoidable with the right supports in place. Uh, other family members that we had supported, some in similar circumstance, some who had been homeless, some who had been suicidal, some uh, uh, in the context of child sexual abuse allegations, and we'd supported all of them. And uh, the, uh, these family members extended, uh, turned the immediate family to us. Uh, Megan Cracker was immediately at the hospital on arrival of the young one. And, uh, and I was there the next morning and also there in the afternoon when the life support was turned off. I'll, I'll never forget that as long as I live. I never forget any child lost. I never forget anyone lost to suicide, which is, for the most part is, is preventable. But, um, brother, uh, I don't see uh, any loss as First Nations or, or migrant-born or, or, or um, um, Australian. Or, I just see us all as brothers and sisters. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, we've all got to stand up to these issues alongside. There's something the family's actually said to me that uh, in terms of the Annalise laws, the Annalise reforms, uh, what you referred to in terms of bail, uh, it, it's it, it's black and white. It's it's all children. It's uh, it, it's it's about everybody. Yeah. Some people get left behind. It becomes racialized in that sense or whatever. We've got to, we had a royal commission into uh, institutional responses to uh, child sexual abuse. The church was chased down, orphanages were chased down, uh, foster homes were chased down, perpetrators were chased down. Most of the perpetration was uh, non-Indigenous. Uh, we've got to chase it down right across the board. Child mm. sexual abuse, suicidality, their polycultural narratives, the age is over, and, uh, and we've got to leave no one behind. Uh, in terms of your question, Greg, of bail, uh, the offender, uh, in this sense, was alleged to be a repeat offender, a multiple predator. Uh, there were a number of charges laid uh, uh, over a period of time. And if it wasn't that he was an incidental offender, uh, alleged, uh, because charges were laid, there was uh, substantive evidence, you'd presume, and uh, admissible evidence uh, to court. Uh, the family believes that had the alleged offender, perpetrator, uh, been jailed, incarcerated, remanded, uh, that the child would not have lived uh, in fear of the individual, uh, the family would not have lived in fear of the individual, and the community would not have lived in fear of the individual. Uh, there are questions of natural justice and, uh, and the presumption of uh, innocence, and that they must always be upheld. But uh, and you know, I'm against 
mandatory sentencing um, against uh, all these draconian laws that we still have in Western Australia. And uh, we're working to change all that. And I'm against uh, some of our more recent introductions about the High Risk Offenders Act, where people who have served their sentence were still deemed to be of high risk uh, because of the nature of their sentence, uh, because of the nature of the charges that led to their conviction and uh, their sentence. Well, I'm against uh, that type of extrajudicial uh, sense of double jeopardy. Uh, uh, and I do not believe that people uh, should be serving additional time uh, almost extrajudicial at the discretion of parole boards and the discretion of the Department of Public Prosecutors and the discretion of the Attorney General. Uh, if you've served your sentence, we've got to respect that. We've got to respect that and release people and not react uh, adversely to that. Otherwise, we become Kafkaesque. Otherwise, uh, we have no consistency in the law. But in terms of uh, uh, child sexual abuse predators, in terms of repeat and multiple uh, predators alleged, uh, I'm in favour of the Annalise uh, laws or the Annalise reforms, uh, where the propensity uh, is to... No, not the propensity. Uh, it is to be prohibitive. They should be jailed up. Uh, and in terms of remand, how long remand takes, well, that's for the courts to start getting right and uh, the judicial system to be invested in by government to expedite to trial as fast as possible these individuals uh, yeah. in terms of their natural justice. Now, Jerry, it's, it's obviously an incredibly complicated and difficult situation. And I imagine for uh, a lot of the families affected, they're experiencing sorry time. They're in, in an incredible grief at this at this point in time. You're someone who's worked a lot in suicide prevention in remote communities and Indigenous communities. Now, you're saying there, of course, there are, you know, there are changes in these Annalise uh, reforms that uh, in, in part, you know, you and, and others are supporting, and particularly around these sort of changes to, to the bail and for repeat offenders and so forth. But it is a very complicated issue, and there are so many factors, so much underprivileged. And of course, the state will respond with sort of more policing, more incarceration. But of course, really? as we know, you know, Aboriginal deaths in custody and, and so forth, policing has never been a, a great solution for Indigenous communities and just this constant overrepresentation of people in the prison system and, and suicides within the prison system. Uh, particularly for our Aboriginal brothers and sisters, it's it's a huge and complex uh, question. The, the the state government have uh, made some, uh, I guess, moves by investing ten million dollars to this region by region uh, suicide prevention plan. But I guess you know, without um, you know, I guess okay, without get, getting too much into it, I was just going to say, how what sort of holistic approach can we can we have to suicide prevention in the in these communities and. Is it straightforward or, you know, has to, does it have to be multifaceted? It is straightforward. It isn't complex. What's complex is the political will. What's complex is, uh, yes, exactly that, the political will. You, you referred to a $10 million investment by government. If only ten, that $10 million investment was in suicide prevention, that's $10 million over five years, over seven regions. So then, therefore, it's about 300000 per region in Western Australia per year. That's not much of an investment. And that's $10 million to consult the communities to come back with solutions in those five years or whatever about how to nuance our best resource uh, 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 suicide prevention in their communities. And uh, I'm against further consultation. We've had 30 years of uninterrupted consultation and discussions and the discursive. We've got to start investing every last cent, every, every cent 
uh, in uh, every dollar in suicide prevention. I'd rather see that $10 million be spent in uh, a service or services. Uh, let's actually have a 1-800 number that people can call or a 1-300 people can call First Nations, a dedicated First Nations Indigenous Suicide Prevention Service. There's none of that. What service do you call in Western Australia if you're a First Nations person and you want support? Not everybody turns to Lifeline. And no offence to Lifeline, but Lifeline isn't suicide prevention. Lifeline is, is someone talking to you on the phone. And the Are You OK stuff, we want people to speak out. Well, what, OK, they're speaking out, but who do they reach out to? And who's going to reach back to them? Let's start investing in suicide prevention infrastructure and a capacity and a capability to respond to people and for assertive outreach and that capability. The majority of First Nations suicidality is in sync with all suicidality in the country. Socioeconomic stresses are assessed when, particularly if you're living below the poverty line, uh, for pronounced negative behaviours and suicidality. And First Nations people, well, I've spent a decade uh, immersed in First Nations suicidality and across the board uh, in all Australians. But First Nations suicidality, I understand it this way. Nearly 100% of the suicides of First Nations people are of people living below the poverty line, living below the poverty line. 17% of Australians live below the poverty line. More than 40% of First Nations people live below the poverty line, with another 20% in proximity to it. In Western Australia, 60% of First Nations people live below the poverty line. In the Northern Territory, 75% they live below the poverty line. We've got to address the poverty. That's one narrative. But then there are layers. Poverty, and the more crushing that poverty gets, uh, the uh, higher the rates of suicidality the higher uh, the, vulner uh, the acute vulnerabilities and the rates of other aberrant behaviour. And, uh, for instance, uh, we've seen what's actually happened in, in the last week, but these stories are not new. These stories are not new. Uh, they're more of the same. We've had a Royal Commission uh, into the Kimberley uh, children, uh, and that was February of last year that the report came back from the Commissioner, uh, from the coroner, uh, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. We were there 10 years ago with the Hope Inquiry. Then we had the Fogliani Inquiry 10 years later last year. We'll be back here again in 10 years' time because the political will is not investing in reducing the poverty in these communities, in upgrading communities with their infrastructure, and also in the urban masses. In the urban masses, we have uh, the most significant proportion of First Nations people living in public housing and social housing. That's where our poorest Australians, after the uh, homeless, live. And we don't address the issues even in our urban masses. And it gets worse in the regional communities and it gets worse in the very remote communities. So just finally, Jerry, uh, I guess if we talk about that political will, we have seen, I, I guess, some forms of sort of social movement around issues of... Uh, well, at least uh, you know First Nations deaths in custody and and so forth, particularly around the the sort of um, Black Lives Matter protests that came to Australia, and we have seen you know people out on the street demanding you know racial equality and, and justice here in Perth. 
but it, it doesn't seem to have necessarily translated to a social movement that's been able to put adequate pressure on both the Labor Party, the Liberals, and even the Greens to really implement this stuff. As you said there, that, that $10 million is, is, isn't going to actually uh, addressing the, the underlying economic causes. Of course, uh, post, well, not even post, we're still in the grips of the COVID-19 pandemic, but we're heading and are already beginning to feel the effects of one of the worst recessions in, in our history, that's obviously just going to make for uh, much worse situations for not only Indigenous people, but all, all people here in WA and Australia are on issues of homelessness and, and impoverishment. Where do you see, I, I guess, going forward, the, the possibility of uh, you know social movements and, and grassroots activism trying to address the situation, both in urban centres and also regionally? It's our greatest hope. It's not the least. It's our greatest hope. It's the only way we're going to galvanise uh, any flicker of political will. And uh, and with and I've worked in a, across social justice movement in many ways in, in many different uh, sectors in, in education, in homelessness, in housing, in health, in, in suicidality, uh, in the refugee movement, and wherever we've actually got change, it's because of the cultural shift, and that comes through advocacy, and advocacy leads to arbitration, and arbitration leads to mitigation and negotiation, genuine negotiation, not born of consultation, but born of public advocacy. I look at this family, and uh, and this analogy goes to the greater context of what you described, brother. Where would they have been? I thought of this many times. Where would they be right now, an impoverished family without mobility and agency, had they not reached out, had they not been supported by other families to reach out to Megan Cracker and myself? And this isn't to talk ourselves up. This is, there are many like us as uh, advocates in addition to the work that we do. But had their agency not been taken out through the media, this family would be stranded. This family would be unsupported to the extent that it is being supported right now uh, to the uh, galvanising of the care coordination that is evident at this time. It may be that this family would have had another suicide as suicidality is is part of its wider context. It isn't limited to this one incident. It may be that the the other children and one of the younger children would have been removed from the family. It may be that this mother who is houseless uh, would be homeless right now. All these realities uh, uh, are not now the case. The family's steadfast, solid together, being supported in transitional accommodation and uh, and on its way to long-term housing, all the things that should have been done before. Why? Because there's been this advocacy, their voice has been garnered, they asked for voice, they asked for support, they asked to get their stories out and we helped facilitate that. And the Black Lives Movement has, has done exactly that. There have been little wins along the way, it's incremental. Uh, we Obviously, we want more than the incremental. Uh, we want uh, uh, unmet need inroaded, not unmet need always uh, uh, um, outstripping uh, uh, the ways forward. But without the media, with, without the public advocacy, w- without these stories being told, without uh, a multitude of voices, we're not going to get anywhere. We're not going to get anywhere, nowhere fast. And that's our only hope, our greatest hope, and that's when other individuals uh, behind the scenes can actually uh, pressure governments, uh, arbitrate, galvanise, 
and secure what can. The promise of everything that should be is a hard ask. I've never, I've, I've got legislation across the line. I've got reforms across the line. Others have got similarly so. There are many courageous warriors who, who do similarly so. There are many of us across the board. But we are, the unmet need is still not being inroaded. There is a long way to go. But the, all I can say is the advocacy, the voices, the multitude of those voices must never be diminished. Uh, the family wanted to speak out. Most families want to speak out. We should be encouraging every voice to speak out and tell its story because it's only with these linear stories that we're getting some difference.